Well, good morning. It's a kind of random day at St Andrews uh, this morning. Uh, well, all day, really, because we have messy church at uh, 10. We thought we wouldn't inflect that on you. Uh, it, it actually plays out much like its name, messy church, uh, with all the kids in. And uh, Mel, is, or is it Kath, uh, is preaching at that. And then we have a guest preacher this evening at 5 and 7 uh, from India, talking about the persecuted church in India especially, so uh, feel free to come back to that. That uh, promises to be eye-opening. It's one of the untold stories, the growth of Christianity in India, where because of the Hindu Nationalist Party, uh, Christians are beginning to suffer um, gravely. Anyway, uh, so uh, it's random, and it's Father's Day, so I thought uh, why not open the classic father text, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, uh, although perhaps more aptly called prodigal God, given uh, God's generosity in uh, his receiving of the son. But I want to reflect, obviously, on the fatherhood of God and what that means for us and for our mission to the world. One of the striking features of ancient Christianity and its remarkable growth was its open meals to the sinners of the world. I may have talked about this before. The early church from the 2nd through about the 5th century uh, had uh, the practice of these open meals that everyone would be invited to. Emperor Julian in the middle of the 4th century, who was a pagan, an anti-Christian, actually noted this in one of his letters Uh, written against the Christians, and he credited these meals with the progress of Christianity. Interesting uh, non-Christian evidence. Uh, He wrote, the Galileans, his name for Christians, the Galileans begin with their so-called love feast or hospitality or service of tables For they have many ways of carrying it out, and hence call it by many names. And the result is that they have led very many into their atheism. He calls Christianity atheism for the obvious reason. Christians denied the Greek and Roman gods. But this practice of the sort of open table fellowship begins with Jesus, doesn't it? The Christians were just doing what Jesus had done, as recorded throughout our Gospels. Indeed, uh, the Luke 15 passage just read to us actually opens by explaining the context of this parable of the prodigal son. If you glance down at Luke 15 verses 1 and 2, which we didn't have read, but is the proper context of the passage, we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So we need to picture uh, the audience listening to this parable of the prodigal son. And as you know, there are actually three parables Jesus tells to these audiences, the uh, lost coin, uh, sorry, the lost uh, sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son. But it's important to understand you've got the sinners and tax collectors gathering around to hear Jesus. 
And the Pharisees and teachers of the law grumbling, muttering, he eats with sinners. Of course, the sinners and tax collectors were those at a great distance from God, had disobeyed his laws. The Pharisees and teachers of the law, well, the Pharisees were a kind of conservative reform movement in Judaism of the time, and the teachers of the law were the specialist academics, and in this context, probably the specialist academics who were part of the group called the Pharisees. But their complaint is Jesus' open meals. He eats with sinners. How dare he? And so it's in this context Jesus tells the three parables that we have, the third of which is our focus this morning. And just as there are three characters in this parable, two sons and one father, so there are really three points Jesus wants to drive home to both audiences, the sinners on the one hand and the Pharisees on the other, to explain his open fellowship toward the sinners. His three points are very simple. He wants to clarify who the sinner really is. He wants to describe what God is really like. And he wants to critique religion for what it really is. And we'll take those in turn. First, he clarifies the sinner. Clearly, the young son in this famous parable represents the sinners, whom Jesus wines and dines, according to Luke's gospel. As such, we have here a really interesting insight into how Jesus defined sin. Because obviously he had thought about, how do I convey what the sinner is? And, and he'd come up with this picture of a young son coming to dad and saying, I want my inheritance. And so we see in verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate, that is, the inheritance when you're dead, Dad. Quite an insulting thing. So he, the father, divided his property between them, which is something no ancient Middle Eastern father would have done. It works in a parable. It wouldn't have worked in real life. But anyway, not long after that, the son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Uh, today, we think of sin almost entirely in terms of the wild living part of this. But that's really just a throwaway line at the end. The real offense of this younger son isn't the wild living. It's the demanding the father's money and then wanting nothing to do with the father. Wanting everything dad has and just nothing to do with dad. Isn't that an interesting insight into the sinner? The sinner is the one who wants all of the creator's resources and nothing to do with the creator. Wants to spend the resources of creation on myself and not give thanks to the creator. And I would say if that's Jesus' picture of the sinner, it puts Australians in the frame. Are we not world experts at enjoying the gifts of creation and ignoring the giver. We revel in the comforts of our time and place. The beauties, the food, the abundance, the holidays. 
and yet, as a culture, rarely thank God, rarely apologize for the misuse of these things, rarely seek his guidance for how these resources should be used. We, as a culture, are world-class sinners. This is why so-called good people are still sinners in Jesus' eyes. Because you can be entirely moral toward other human beings and completely prodigal with regard to God. Pursuing the comforts of creation while ignoring the creator. Please don't be fooled into thinking a moral person isn't a sinner on Jesus' definition. Well, the son, verse 17, we're told, comes to his senses. I love that as a description. Um, I mean, this is Jesus' picture of someone repenting, right? And he describes it as coming to his senses. I mean, many people in our culture would think you, you've, you've got to leave your good sense outside of church when you come in here, right? We've, all, we've got a big bucket out there, and as soon as we pass through the church door, we take out our senses and come in and, you know, be ignorant together. Uh, But not for Jesus. He came to his senses. He saw what is real. And what is real is that there is a creator to whom we ought to be thankful, upon whom we are dependent. He came to his senses and then uh, decides uh, in verse 20 to go home. Now, this is the point in the parable where I bet the, the sinners listening to Jesus who knew the young son represented them, thought to themselves, I wonder how the father will react. I wonder what Jesus will say about God's response to us. And of course, the Pharisees and teachers of the law must have been thinking at this pivot point, excellent, now some fatherly justice, discipline, But Jesus not only has an unsettling definition of sin, he has a pretty striking picture of God. Look at verse 20. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, And kissed him. Notice that his father runs, embraces, and kisses even before the son has blurted out his apology. The son hasn't even said, you know, we have done what we ought not to have done, (laughs) etc. No. And, And what's more, the father doesn't even let him finish the apology. This has to be deliberate. Did you notice in verse 19 where he prepares his speech? Listen to the phrases. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. That's the speech prepared. But then look what happens when he starts to deliver it. Verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. So far, so good. That's the speech as prepared. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, do you see the line that's missing? 
He had prepared to say, make me like one of your hired servants. And the father doesn't even let him say the line. He's interrupted him. I mean, this is an extraordinary account, no doubt deliberately crafted by Jesus. The father has already embraced him before the apology, and the father doesn't even let him finish the apology before he's saying, quick, let's celebrate. What a beautiful picture of God. And instead of uh, placing restrictions on the son, he lavishes the good things of the property on the son. And so we get this remarkable statement. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, fattened calf, let's feast and celebrate. How tempting it must have been for, the, for any father <laughs> to say to such a prodigal son, go to your room, say your prayers, we'll discuss this in the morning. But that's not what Jesus wants to say. Jesus wants to say God is a running, embracing, forgiving, celebrating parent. Most of us have a picture of God. That is perhaps the combination of experiences, imagination, and hopefully for us a bit of Bible. But sometimes the experiences and the imagination take over our picture of God in our mind's eye. Well, I just want to say this morning, this is Jesus' picture of God. There is no more detailed picture of God from Jesus' lips. And the way Jesus wants us to think of the Father is the loving, embracing, forgiving parent. But Jesus is not finished. He's not content to redefine the sinner and redescribe God. He wants to critique the religion of his opponents. And that's why the older son is in the parable. I mean, the parable would still work, wouldn't it, if it were just the young son and the father embraces him full stop, right? We'd all go, praise the Lord, God's mercy is great, let's rest in that forgiveness. Uh, however, Jesus deliberately placed the older son in the parable because he knows he has sinners in the audience listening to him this day and Pharisees. And clearly the older son represents the Pharisees. So as such, it's a good insight into how Jesus critiqued religion. No doubt he thought long and hard about describing the sinner in those terms of the younger son and thought long and hard about describing God in the picture of the Father, and I think we have here a deliberate account of religion. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field when he came near the house and heard music and dancing. So he called out to one of his servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. By his own confession... In verse 29, 
this older son has adopted the stance of a slave to a master, not a son to a father. All these years I've been slaving for you. That's his perspective. That's what religion will do. Lock you up in a rules-based mentality where God is the master and you are the slave. As a result, this older son has a stunted grasp of his father's generosity and mercy toward him. And verse 29 is quite clear in uh, the son's perspective. All these years I've been slaving with you. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate. He thinks his dad has withheld everything of the property for him. You haven't even given me a young goat, but you give the fattened calf to this one. Now, it's important in the storytelling of Jesus to realize this isn't the truth. This is the son's perspective because of what religion does to your mind. Because what does the father reply in verse 31? My son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. Right? There's the clue. The young goat was yours. The calf was already yours. The ring was already yours. The robe was already yours. The sandals are already yours. It's all yours. But the older son couldn't see it. The older son's perspective of the father was that he was a stinge. The point, of course, is that's what religion will do to you. Makes you feel like a slave, makes God seem mean and stingy, withholding grace. As a result, of course, if this is the perspective religion brings, as a result, your attitude toward the sinful world is going to be one of anger. That's exactly what we get in verse 28. He hears the partying, he learns what's going on, and the first thing we're told about about him is the older brother became angry. Now, obviously, this emotional outburst uh, is a picture of what the Pharisees were doing in the opening line. Right? The Pharisees who were listening in, what does it say? They muttered to themselves. This is the Greek word gongouzo, grumbling. In a way then, this older son is just as far away from the father as the young one. At the emotional, psychological level. He's on the property, but his heart is a million miles away. The Pharisee is as distant from God as the sinner. But God is tender to both. To the sinner, the father is on the lookout, ready to receive, embrace, forgive. But notice, to the grumpy religious type... The father pleads, verse 28, begs him to come in and join the celebration. I love that Jesus' critique is still tender. He doesn't thump the Pharisee over the head. He pleads him to come and rest in mercy and extend it to others. I conclude simply by saying 
May we all at St Andrews know the Father's heart. First to ourselves, so that we might rest in that embrace and forgiveness for which our Lord died. And then, may we know the Father's heart as we extend that grace to others. So that not only will we know in our hearts that God is a running, embracing, forgiving Father, but that we will be able to convey that picture of God to a world that doesn't know him. So Lord, we pray that you would write this, your word, on our hearts. That we would know your mercy and rest in it. And that we would convey this mercy to all around us. In Jesus' name.